Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of Strange Sound, proving once and for all that this podcast goes up to 11. Indeed, and hopefully quite a bit higher. How are you all? I hope everyone is fine. And uh, we enter another week of strangeness in the era of COVID-19. Very strange time. I hope all of you are coping with this well. Um, That you're successfully avoiding contracting this terrible illness, this very unpredictable illness, um, and that you're keeping safe and that your families are safe and that if you're out there, if you're in one of those professions um, where you need to be out on the front lines, whether you're a first responder or a uh, medical person or or even just a you know grocery store clerk or someone who does the deliveries, whatever, um, I hope you're keeping safe. Goodness, what a time. What a terrible time. But we're getting through it. Most of us. We are at, as of this evening, somewhere in the neighborhood of um, 80,000 lost souls um, during this pandemic in the United States. It's really awful. It's a horrible failure in so many different ways um ugly and here we are um it just keeps getting worse and it's like so many things that happen in the united states um it's about class it's about race we're seeing how this affects people um we're seeing who it affects more than others. We're seeing the degree to which privileged people and the government that serves them um, are exploiting those who are more vulnerable. Um, This push to go back to work is really a push to get people back to work who um, are on the bottom of society, who drive the profits of the people on the top of society. Those are the people who have to risk their lives. That's what that's all about. And it's kind of uh, appallingly fascinating to see the degree to which they are really unapologetic about trying to get these people back to work. I wasn't really going to talk about this very much today, but it's just such an overriding issue. I wanted to make mention of it. Um, What I find really disturbing about this entire thing is just the, the willingness on the part of both the administration, the president um, and um, certain governors to minimize this crisis in a way that will, hopefully drive their um, workforces, you know, the sort of groundling workforce back into service just to keep the economy rolling, um, regardless of what risk this will present to them. And I don't think anyone expresses this more clearly than 
Donald Trump himself. Um, and I don't ordinarily do this sort of thing, but I wanted to give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is a clip that has been played many times. Um, they played it on Majority Report. It's been played over and over again on on various news shows. And it's uh, it's just very revealing of the president's thinking on this issue. But this is from a visit that he paid to a factory um, last week, um, a factory that's producing personal protective equipment, masks. Of course, he was wandering around the factory without any mask on. Um, but he made some remarks to um, at least the workers at the factory, uh, a an assembly at the factory, and uh, he had a couple of things to say, uh, usual kind of rambling, you know, meandering speech that he engages in. But uh, this was of particular interest, and I'm just going to play this for you and then, then return after that. But uh, this is President Trump from last week um, at this factory, I believe in Pennsylvania. We have more cases than anybody in the world. But why? Because we do more testing. When you test, you have a case. When you test, you find something is wrong with people. If we didn't do any testing, we would have very few cases. They don't want to write that. It's common sense. So we test much more, many, many times. South Korea, you hear about? Okay, that was President Trump. (sighs) If you don't test... You don't have a lot of cases. You've heard this before, right? This is essentially what he was saying about the cruise ship, you know, back in, what was that, February? When there was a cruise ship off um, offshore that they were sort of hoping to keep offshore, he wanted to keep his numbers down. This is essentially um, the same point. He's saying, when we test... We find sick people. If we don't test, there are no sick people. And effectively, what that's saying is, I mean, obviously, there's there's the same number of sick people whether or not you test. It's just that the number stays down. They can pretend that there are fewer sick people. Now, obviously, that as a strategy doesn't work very well because people who get sick tend to end up in the hospital. And people who end up in the hospital sometimes tend to end up dead. So that wouldn't really affect it on the on the other end of it. But you see what he's saying here. And what I am saying to you now is that any reasonable person hearing the President of the United States make this comment, revealing that he thinks of it in these terms, any reasonable person should be able to determine that this person is not fit to be president that he should not be president of the United States. This is a this person is a sociopath. Anyone who thinks in these terms is completely sociopathic. That's really all I have to say about it. It's just gobsmacking that he says that quiet part loud. And really what he's doing is modeling behavior that can be followed by um obsequious Republican governors all across the nation, including, you know, Ron DeSantis, his mini-me down in Florida, and uh, 
that jackass Kemp in Georgia, um, and numerous others. Um, they understand that the less they test, the more it seems like they don't have a problem. At least to a certain extent. At least on the front end. That can help them pretend that they don't have a problem. This is really disgusting. And this is the reason why we have more cases and more deaths than anybody else in the world. It's because these people are not taking this seriously. And you can paint me disgusted. Anyway, that wasn't really what I was going to talk about this time around. But I just wanted to touch base on that because it's just that I heard that um, on the day that he made those remarks. And it just, it's just one of those, one of those comments that just sticks with you. Um, it's just amazing. The man is a total douche. Anyway, as some of you know, and if some of you um, who read uh, the blog um, at big-green.net, uh, what I've been calling Hammer Mill Days <laughs> for many years now, but it's essentially our blog. Uh, we have the usual rubbish feed, which is about our band Big Green, and um, the political rants feed, which um, is more focused on stuff like what I talk about on this on this podcast. Um, this past week, I posted uh, a post about um, medical billing. As folks who have listened to this may remember, and I'll repeat it for those who haven't heard this before, um, who haven't listened to Strange Sound before. Um, I was in the hospital about a month ago. I spent about a week, um, not a week, actually four full days in the hospital um, over the course of a stretch of five days. Four of those days I spent in the hospital um, over a non-COVID-related issue. Uh, I needed a, a minor operation, um, laparoscopic um, abdominal surgery, and I'm fine. Came out of it okay. Um, had a minor complication. Had to go back in for another day overnight, um, part of the next day, and then I went home, and I've been fine ever since, and very lucky. But as is the case in the United States, the medical trauma comes first. Uh, the financial trauma comes second. And this is a bit of what I was writing about on the blog. Um, as I mentioned when I came back and did the first episode post-hospitalization, I think I mentioned that the other shoe had yet to drop. I had not received any of the bills from my four days stay in the hospital. Um, and <laughs> I hadn't, but they've been rolling in more recently. Um, and what's become clear um, through the billing is that, yes, um, even if you're covered, 
and I have an employer-based health coverage. My health insurance is employer-provided. I've described it on the show before. Um, I think it was episode one where I talked about this at length. Um, My employer-provided health insurance covered a lot of the costs, but the impact of this four-day stay, um, for me personally, will be in the thousands of dollars. So I will be out of pocket thousands of dollars um, because of an illness that I had. And this is something that happens to people across the country. Uh, I am fortunate in that this isn't like a huge crisis for me, but it is a serious expense. And it's kind of gobsmacking what the cost of a four-day hospital stay in upstate New York is and uh, how much um, these institutions charge for their services. It's amazing. But in essence, my health coverage, and I've described it before, but I'll just give a kind of a thumbnail description of it. Once again, I have what's called a high deductible plan. These are very common now. Um, It's provided by a major medical uh, insurance provider. And it provides for coverage that has a large deductible, so $3,600 a year. The first $3,600 a year I pay for with some assistance from my employer. So my employer um, contributes two-thirds of that amount to an HSA, a health savings account, and I contribute the, the final third. As I've mentioned before in episode one, I believe it was, um, the thing that makes this health insurance remotely affordable is the contributions by my employer. So um, they pay a large percentage of my premium cost, and they also contribute to the HSA. So my high deductible plan has a $3,600 a year deductible. So I pay, um, with my employer's help, the first $3,600 worth of medical charges that I have in any given calendar year. There is also a $7,200 maximum out-of-pocket, which is to say, after that $3,600, they start covering 90% of the costs of my medical bills. They cover 90%. I pay a 10% copay. That obtains until I spend another $3,600. So presumably another $36,000 worth of services. Um, They will cover 90%. I will cover 10%. After that point, they pay 100%. That's the deal, with certain exceptions. Um, There's some stuff about out-of-network care. Um, There are certain um, procedures and, like, primary care visits, um, a limited number of those are included in in the plan uh, without a copay. In any case, the health issue that I had in April, 
that sent me to the hospital. And again, this is the first time I've ever been hospitalized. This is the first time I've ever been admitted to the hospital. Um, this is the first time I've ever had any kind of operation. Um, and this was a laparoscopic um, abdominal surgery, so it wasn't a hugely serious operation, but it's the first time anyone has ever, you know, cut a hole in me and stuck something inside of me. The cost of that, needless to say, has exceeded my deductible for the year. And then some. I am looking at a bill from my hospital. And now, mind you, I have received a bill from a radiologist. I have received a bill from an attending physician. These are all separate bills. And then the bill that I'm holding in my hand is from the hospital itself. So this is just the services that the hospital provided directly. In other words, this is the cost of staying in a room, a semi-private room in the hospital, using their um, using their equipment, their diagnostic equipment, um, whatever else they provide, intravenous fluids, um, meals, uh, use of the of the emergency room, use of the operating room, but none of the charges from the doctors, right? So this is like nursing care, etc. And they broke it up into two parts because I actually kind of had two stays. It's considered one incident essentially, but I was in from April 14th through April 16th, the first time. And then I came back on the 17th and I stayed until the 18th. The first time around, the charges came to $30,206.47. That is the bill that the hospital submitted to my health insurer. $30,206.47. That includes a charge of more than $3,600 for room and board. Semi-private room. Operating room services came to more than $7,600. I was in there for 45 minutes. So... Sundry services, the bottom line on on those two days, those three days, rather, I should say, because it was the 14th, the 15th, and the 16th, came to $30,206.47. The next two days that I was in the hospital, the 17th and the 18th, came to a total of $19,154.27. Those are the charges just for the use of the hospital. Now, this isn't what my insurer paid, right? Because they have a con contractual amount that they agree to pay for these services. So with adjustments, we're talking more like, I'm just doing the math in my head. Adjustments come down to more like probably half that. Between the two stays, my insurance company paid something like $25,000 to $30,000. But the actual billing came to about $50,000. Now, my part of that, because of the deductible and because of the copay after my deductible was satisfied, because this blew right through, obviously, the $3,600, right? The deductible charges that, that would go to me plus the 10% that I would pay beyond those charges came to more than $5,000. So 
So I'm looking at a bill right here for five for more than five thousand dollars that doesn't include any of the charges from the surgeon that attended me. The surgeon who actually did the work on me. That's not included in this. I believe I have received a bill from the anesthesiologist. And I've received bills from the radiologist, but I have not yet received a bill from the surgeon. So again, the impact of this right now is it's more than $5,000. That's on top of the other bills that I've received already. And again, my maximum out-of-pocket is $7,200, including the $3,600 deductible. So the impact... The financial impact for me is going to be in excess somewhere between four and five thousand dollars. Now, I can find a way to pay that, but the point I'm trying to make is if you're just an average working stiff, and a lot of people have, if they have coverage through their employer, they have something very similar to this. A lot of these plans are very much like this. If you're just a plain working stiff who's who's just skimming by and you get hit by something like, like this which is it's not like you you know it, typically in medicine it doesn't matter how you got to where you got but this is something that hit me like a truck no warning never had a problem in this area before and suddenly I had this thing that required an operation. I was fortunate in a sense that it happened during the COVID crisis because um, the surgeon that I had is a bariatric surgeon that usually does elective surgery. And elective surgeries in New York have been suspended for a couple of months. So he was available and... um, they turned it around in a matter of like hours. I mean, he wanted to do the surgery almost immediately. So um, that part of it was fortunate in terms of the timing. What wasn't fortunate was that also while I was in the hospital, I was exposed to someone who had been exposed to COVID-19. So I ended up being in quarantine for two weeks. But that aside, this is the sort of thing that can come up for anybody and somebody who's got just a relatively modest income, especially in a situation like this when, when everyone's job is on the line, you know, this is a bill for $5,000. Where the hell is the average working stiff going to find $5,000? Especially when you've, in, in this current era when there's so many people out of work. I actually called the hospital to talk to them about this bill. Um, just because it used to be, <laughs> not so many years ago, if you got like a big bill from our local hospital, you could call them up and they might negotiate with you. They might knock a little off the bill. Uh, that's not the case anymore. But <laughs> I called them up just to discuss the bill with them. And... Their response to me was, well, you know, we can, if if you make less than a certain amount of money, we can, you may be eligible for a slight discount. 
um, but you have to make less than a certain amount of money. Um, and it's kind of a sliding scale. Uh, they also um, suggested a a um, a credit option. Um, I wasn't eligible for the discount, so I I said, "Well, okay, what is your what is your credit option?" Uh, I was quite curious, and they said, "Well, you know, this is something something that we can do for our, our clients." And they they named the company that financed it, but I think it was after I had asked them because they said, "Well, you know." Um, how do I sign up for this? Oh, it's a verbal agreement, a verbal agreement. So they have some kind of loan that you can agree to verbally that would put you on the hook for whatever your charges are. Um, I don't know what the interest rate would be. Um, I think they were saying it was a no interest loan, but typically in arrangements like that, it's no interest if you pay within a certain amount of time and if you um, hold to the to whatever the provisions of the loan are. Uh, this is a verbal agreement. And I said, well, can you send me information about this? Uh, well, you know, there's no real way to do that. They said they'd send me a brochure. But <laughs> it's like... I made the obvious comment to the person I was talking to on the phone. Um, I don't enter into a promissory note or a loan arrangement without reading what the agreement is. Um, do you have a lot of people that sign up for this sort of thing over the phone? I've never signed up for a loan through a verbal agreement. In any case, uh, that's the sort of thing that people face, you know, when they're hit with unexpected cost, and you can sort of see what happens to people. Why so many, so many bankruptcies are medical related, right? I mean, this is this was not a heart attack. This was not like this was in a certain respect. It was life threatening. But it was a minor operation, and it's something that isn't like a chronic issue necessarily. Um, uh, it required laparoscopic surgery that really didn't last more than probably 15 or 20 minutes. Um, it was a relatively quick fix. Recovery time was fast. Um, this is a minor thing. And this... The impact of this is thousands of dollars. And we know the statistics about working people. And uh, just to sort of backtrack to my last episode, that's, that's the joke about what a great economy we had before the shutdown. I think it was Heather McGee that mentioned um, on Chris Hayes' um, podcast that um, if the economy is so great. Why is it that two weeks of shutdown has sent people by the millions to, to get food assistance? You know, why is everyone so, so much on the edge? How come it's really hard, almost impossible for people to get their hands on $4,000 in an emergency or even $400 in an emergency? I'm fortunate that I'm not one of those people 
I mean, this hurts, but this isn't like a existential crisis for me. And I'm fortunate in that, in that regard. But anyone who's got this type of plan, and a lot of people have this type of plan, this would be a disaster. I don't know how they'd ever see the other end of this. So I just wanted to share that with you. Um, and I'm sure um, if someone listening to this uh, has a similar type of insurance, uh, maybe you've run into this problem yourself. Anyway, that's all I've got to say about it for right now. I'd like to hear what you have to say. If you go to our site at anchor.fm slash strange sound, you can record a voicemail and I will be glad to play it on, on the show. Um, you can also contact me through our social media accounts, which are linked to the site. You can also contact us through um, my site at big-green.net. That's pretty easy to get in contact with me. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Strange Sound Pod, and um, we're also on Facebook. So there are plenty of ways to uh, interact with us. Again, you can find the links on our anchor.fm slash strange sound page, as well as the other 10 episodes of this show. So uh, be glad to hear what you have to say about it. Be glad to hear your thoughts. Be glad to turn this into a conversation. Um, I'm getting tired of hearing myself speak, so please speak up. Let me know what you think. Be glad to hear from you. Anyway, take care out there. Better days ahead. Let's hope so. So long.